Hello and welcome to day 31 of OT with DA. My name is Pastor David Asherick and I'm the DA part of OT with DA. And the OT part is, as you might have guessed, the Old Testament. And what we're doing is a 75-day reading challenge through a large portion of the Old Testament. Not all of it. That would be a fairly ambitious project to go through the entirety of the Old Testament in the way that we are in 75 days. And so we're making our way through probably about a third to a half of the Old Testament. And uh, today is day 31. And we are, we are using as our textbook, Patriarchs and Prophets, written by Ellen White, published in 1890. And I think if you are following along with this challenge, you are having probably a very similar experience to the one that I'm having. And that is, you're like, wow, this book is amazing. This book is insightful. And it's really teaching us how to understand the Old Testament, how not to be intimidated by the Old Testament, and how to better understand how it is and why it is that Jesus is the hero of the story. Uh, he's the hero of the Old Testament story, and he's the hero of the universe. And the chapter today, titled The Tabernacle and Its Services, is a really great window. We've had many windows already. We're almost halfway through the book, amazingly. We've had many windows already into the ministry of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, and we're going to do that again today. And so I'm very much looking forward to today's presentation. Quite a different chapter. Um, very unusual. This is very different than the sort of narrative-based, story-based chapters that we were getting in Genesis, in Genesis and even in the early part of, of Exodus. And today's chapter, chapter 30, The Tabernacle and Its Services, covers an extraordinary amount of information, right? Like, here at the beginning of the chapter, it says based on Exodus 25 to 40, right? So that's like, that's a ton of material. And then also Leviticus 4 and 16. So an astonishing amount of material covered in this single chapter. And uh, there's no way we're going to be able to cover everything found in uh, Exodus 25 all the way to chapter 40, which is the last chapter in Exodus. But we're, we're going to highlight what are two or three of the most important points in this section of Exodus and in this chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets. So welcome, everybody. Day 31. A quick reading to everybody there. Uh, let's see. Somebody says, howdy. And uh, hello, Todd. Great to see you. Uh, chiming in. Hello, Scott. Hello, Sin. Hello, Megan. Welcome, everybody. So glad you're here. Hello, Stone Doctor, New York City. Hello, Reiner. Hello, Wits Messy. Hey, hello from Trinidad. Wow. All right. Hello from Central Colorado. Hello, Gabby Abby. All right. Great to see everybody signing in. So glad that you're all here. This is a great section, uh, a, great, a great chapter that covers a great section of Exodus. And as I mentioned already, you know, the first half to maybe two-thirds almost of Exodus is largely narrative. There's a story, there's a flow, it feels a lot like the book of Genesis in the sense that you're following plot lines and characters, uh, in this case largely, Moses and Aaron and the Israelites and Pharaoh. But now we're getting into, this is fairly, um, this chapter is almost like reading an instruction manual. And uh, that's the way that not only the latter third of Exodus feels, it's the way that the whole book of Leviticus feels, right? It's like, it's like you just bought a new camera 
or you just bought some new electronic gadget and you wanna know, how do I work this thing? And you set out to read that instruction manual. By the way, I have a friend who's a technical writer and that's what she does. She writes instruction manuals. It takes a certain kind of mind, uh, a certain kind of person to write an instruction manual in a way that lots of different people with lots of different minds and lots of different ways of learning will understand it. And so that's a little bit what this chapter feels like. There are some narrative elements, but for the most part, this is really an introduction to the Israelite sanctuary and to the priestly ministry of Jesus and the sacrificial ministry of Jesus that that sanctuary anticipates. So different kind of chapter, I really loved it because this is kind of my sweet spot. I absolutely love theology. I love trying to understand where the Christological applications are. Like, what does this teach us about Jesus? What does this reveal about his ministry, about his sacrifice? And so, yeah, I love this. Absolutely love it. And, and I'm going to point out a couple things today, two or three in particular, actually one in particular, but we'll have some other ideas as well that I think will really help this chapter to come alive. And if you found this chapter um, a little tricky, a little difficult, yeah, I understand that. It's it's not easy. There are some tricky things in here. So glad you're all here. Welcome. We're going to start with prayer. And, uh, you know, I can't even believe it when I say it. As I mentioned yesterday, we're in the threes. Today's day 31. We are fast approaching day 35, which is the halfway point. I don't even know what to say about that. Again, it feels like we just got started. And you know that you're, you know, when you pick up the book and it looks like that, you have sort of, let's see, we're on page, in my version, 410, and this goes to about 920. So we're very close to halfway through. And I'm having the same experience with my journal, right? When I pick it up, it's like, whoa, I'm halfway through this thing, which I actually like because it lays nice and flat. And so anyway, I've got a book I'm going to tell you about in a little bit as well. So let's uh, start with prayer. Welcome, everybody. So glad you're here. Sabria says, I thought this was a nice chapter. It's a great chapter. It's a fantastic chapter, but it's, it's a different kind of chapter, right? Um, so let's pray, and we're going to get into this. Oh, yeah, you're right. I've been saying 35 is halfway. Why am I saying that? There we go. I've just proved that math is not my strong point. Yeah. 3738 would be halfway through 75. Sorry, you guys have probably corrected me about that a hundred times and I just wasn't looking at the comments. Apologies. So yeah, you're right. We've still got a little ways to go before we're technically or or you know mathematically halfway through, but it kind of feels like, yeah, I mean, we've got a we've got a long way to go, but we've we've come a long way, haven't we? All right, so let's pray together and then we're into this, and I'm really looking forward to uh, what's in store in chapter. 30. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for the OT with DA community. I want to thank you, uh, most importantly, for Jesus. We want to thank you for the Old Testament. We want to thank you for the ministry of Moses who wrote down the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Father, today we find ourselves in that latter third of the book of Exodus and also a little bit of Leviticus. And Lord, this can be a little tricky, especially reading through, you know, modern eyes, 21st century eyes, not always easy to just immediately grasp what's going on here. A different time, a different circumstance, different situation. And yet, Father, there are incredibly important, powerfully important lessons for us in this sanctuary. And Father, there is a lot of relevancy 
And I pray that you will help me uh, to communicate that relevancy in a way that's accessible, that's understandable, that's as simple as it can be, but not simpler. And I pray also for the listeners that uh, they're reading, they're journaling, they're listening. I pray that this would be a time of, yeah, just increased understanding. You're obviously trying to show us something here, Father. There's a lot of symbols. There's a lot of uh, artistry. There's, there's a lot going on here. You're trying to teach us something. So help us to learn what it is that you're trying to teach us, is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so chapter 30 of Patriarchs and Prophets, titled The Tabernacle and Its Services, uh, to, to say what I've already said, covers a, a significant amount of material, right? The latter third of the book of Exodus. It reads a little bit like an owner's manual, but we can sort of summarize the whole of, of what's going to happen in this chapter in a single verse. And I'm in Exodus chapter 25. I've got my Bible open here, Exodus chapter 25. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly. With his heart, you shall uh, take my offering. Right? Is that how it says? With his heart, you shall take the offering. So you just have to remember, let's put ourselves in this sort of narrative, if we can, insofar as it's possible, into the psychological headspace of the Israelites who find themselves for the better part of a year at the base of Mount Sinai, actually for a year. And they don't know what's coming, right? The gods that they are accustomed to, the idols that they are accustomed to, are not, are not idols and gods that part seas and drown you know, hostile armies and that speak from the summit of the mountain in such a way that you feel like you're going to shake to death. You know, you don't have this pillar of cloud. They're just wood, they're stone, they're metal, they're basically useless. And now they find themselves like face to face, not literally face to face, but in close proximity. Moses was, insofar as it's possible, able to see Yahweh. We've already covered that. But they find themselves in terrifying and yet really wonderful proximity to Yahweh. This is a totally different kind of God. He's, he's not manifest in some obviously material way. There is the pillar of cloud and of smoke, but, he, but he's not an ox. He's not a calf. He's not a falcon. Totally different kind of God. And so what God is going to do is he's going to teach them. He's going to teach them a great many things, right? We've already had the Decalogos, the Decalogue, the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. And We've, we've learned that lesson, and we're going to continue to learn that lesson. This is all an unfolding, a progressive unfolding of God's covenant with the descendants of Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the descendants of Jacob, and now here we are, the descendants of Jacob who had been in Egypt for 200, 200-ish years, right? Ever since their ancestor Jacob had arrived, and now they have been brought to the base of Sinai, and they're there to learn stuff. Right? But they have no idea. It's not like um, if you were going to college and let's say you're going to study nursing. Well, you have some idea of what you're going to be learning, right? You know that you're going to be learning anatomy and physiology and uh, microbiology and chemistry. You, you know, you have some sense, you know, when you get there to that first day of nursing school, you have some sense of what you're going to be learning. They have no idea, right? They know that there's going to be some general um, truth about sacrifices, because there have been, you know, down through the, the revelation of God to Abraham and his descendants, and even before Abraham, there's been this thing about sacrifices. So they know that's going to be there. But this whole idea of a building 
and of the building being constructed in a certain way according to a pattern and having compartments and furniture that are all designed in a certain way and arranged in a certain way. They don't, this is all new to them. They have no idea, right? You don't know what you don't know. And these shepherds turned slaves turned liberated, right, nation, they don't know what they don't know. And they're about ready to learn what they don't know. And one of the things that they don't know is how the whole plan of reconciliation or reconnection works. And so God says to Moses, tell the children of Israel to bring offerings. But these aren't just any general offerings, very specific offerings. I'm in verse 3 of Exodus 25. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. They can bring gold, they can bring silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for sweet incense. Verse 7, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate. And I imagine at this point that the Israelites are all like, what's this for? What, what are we doing? They'd already remember. We've already had, at least in, in the flow of, of uh, uh, patriarchs and prophets, this is actually happening before the golden calf incident in Exodus. But if we sort of if we sort of advance forward to when the golden calf incident takes place, which is in what, 34? Is that right? Exodus, uh, let's just double check that. 30, am I wrong about that? 32, 32. So they've already been very recently, as, as far as we move through Patriarchs and Prophets, the chronology there, they've already been recently seriously rebuked and 3,000 have lost their lives in building the wrong kind of thing. Right? They, they, they brought their earrings, they brought their nose rings, they brought their bracelets, and they brought their jewelry, they brought their offerings, and something was constructed, something was built, and it did not go well. It did not go well at all. And so you can just imagine that now when they're being invited to bring your offerings, they're thinking, well, what's this for? And then verse 8 is the key. Verse 8 is the key that unlocks this. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, maybe the most important verse in Exodus one of them, certainly top five, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, a, a sacred place, a house. They're going to make a house, and then I'm going to inhabit, I'm going to indwell that house, and then I will be in the camp of Israel. Now, there's so much going on here just at the outset. And the first thing that we have to notice, right, it's just inescapably obvious, is that clearly, God wants to come down the mountain and be with his people. This idea of separation where, where God is at the top, you know, covered in thick darkness, and they're down at the bottom, confused, terrified, uh, that's, not, that's not what God wants, right? God does not want to be totally shrouded in mystery, totally shrouded in blackness. This is a really cool point, that one of the great things that we, sort of the most basic thing that we encounter in Scripture is that the God of Scripture Yahweh is trying to reveal. He is disclosing himself. That's why we refer to scripture as revelation. We have a book in the Bible called Revelation, right? And God is revealing himself. He's disclosing himself. Now, we theologians distinguish between what's called natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation is nature, right? We see in nature and we intuit that there's a lot of design and beauty in nature. And we say, wow, they're must be some creator, something made all of this. It didn't just spring into being. That's called natural revelation. It's the revelation that we all have access to 
Even if we don't have access to the Hebrew Scriptures or to the Law and the Prophets or to the New Testament, we have access to nature. That's natural revelation. Special revelation is the Bible. It's God's, listen to the words, special revelation. God is specifically and purposefully revealing himself. Well, why would you do that? Well, let's go back to our sort of Exodus, a love story motif. And if you've ever fallen in love, and I hope you have, because it's the most wonderful experience that you can have. When you fall in love, you are progressively wanting to do two things. You're wanting to know more and more about the person that you're interested in, right? Your prospective spouse. And you're also wanting to let them know more and more about you. And it's this mutual revelation, this mutual disclosure, this falling in love that's really great. Now, obviously, in a relationship like that, it's going to be bilateral, right? You're disclosing and you are learning, both. With God, he knows all that there is to know about Israel, about every human being. And so what's primarily taking place here is not that God is learning. In fact, that's not what's happening at all. What's happening is that the Israelites are having God disclosed, revealed, unpacked to them. And so God says, make me a house. Make me a house so that right? Let them make me a sanctuary that or so that I may dwell among them. And immediately, this is really cool. Very cool, very beautiful, and very revelatory. God wants to be with his people. God wants to be near his people. And we've already seen this. If you think back to the Garden of Eden in chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, with the fall, who goes looking for who? Do Adam and Eve, in their confusion, in their shame, in their guilt, do they go looking for God? Say, hey, God, we, we made a mistake and we need some help. No, they go fleeing, they go hiding, and God comes in search of them, right? Not, not mankind in search of God, but God in search of mankind. Not mankind taking the initiative, but God taking the initiative to reveal, to disclose, to unveil. And that's really what's going on here. That's basically the punchline of this chapter, and it's really in many ways the punchline of the whole of Scripture. Because when we come, for example, to the New Testament, Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us, Elohim with us. God longing to draw near, to draw close, to tabernacle with his people. In fact, John actually draws on that very language in John chapter 1, verse 14. It says that we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then it says he, he, he came and dwelt with us. He, he tabernacled with us. Well, this right here is an intimation that the longing desire of God's heart is to be connected with his people, which makes a lot of sense, right? Let's just use the obvious analogy. You're a parent. You don't want to be estranged from your children. You don't want your children to be afraid of you or to be hostile to you or to hate you or to be confused about your love for them. You would want your children to know you, to love you, and to want to be near you, and you would want to be near them. And so the sanctuary is this incredible, the tabernacle is this incredible revelation of God's desire to be with his people, but, and I'm just kind of giving the big umbrella overview here, and then we're going to get right into the chapter, but as the, and let's just be honest, as the complexity of the sanctuary makes clear, this is not just like putting a welcome mat on your door and having people come up and knock and say, hey, I'm here. No, 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 there's there are specific ways and circumstances and days and even, to some degree, techniques right, that, that have to be learned, understood, grasped, and then employed in order to come into Yahweh's presence. 
Yahweh has come into our presence, but he's veiled. He inhabits this holy place. Like literally, that's what the word sanctuary means, this this sacred place. And then inside of the, the sacred place, there's another holy place. And then inside of that, there's a most holy place. So so you can't just go walking, you know, willy-nilly, recklessly, carelessly, thoughtlessly into the presence of Yahweh. And so you get the sense that there's a tension here. Do you feel the tension? And here's the tension. Number one, God longs to be with us, but it can't just happen casually. It can't happen thoughtlessly. It has to happen in a specific way, in a specific manner. There's a sequence that has to be followed. And so what God is doing here is he's taking the initiative to describe to them how it is that reconnection, reconciliation is going to take place. It's really beautiful. And so it's simultaneously a disclosure of God's desire to be with us, but it's also wrapped in a number of mysteries that require thought and require explanation, right? And that's really at the heart of all of this. And at the heart of that, of course, is the sacrifice, this whole idea of sacrifice, which we've had an incredible window into how God views sacrifice, and we've already mentioned this, not like the pagan deities in the surrounding nations and in the surrounding tribes where God's, the deity's wrath or caprice was to be assuaged or purchased by my sacrifice, but in some mysterious, wonderful way, God provides the sacrifice. We've already seen this more recently. That's the Moriah experience with Abraham. We've seen it more recently with what? The Passover, right? The lamb, the lamb was slain. The lamb was eaten with bitter herbs. The blood was painted on the doorpost with the hyssop branch. And somehow, in some shadowy, wonderful, mysterious way, that allowed the destroying angel right, the judgment of God on the firstborn to pass over Israel. So so they're already beginning to comprehend in some sense that there's a death at the heart of this, that there's a sacrifice at the heart of this, that that there's blood at the heart of this. And now what the sanctuary is going to do is it's going to further reveal how this is all working. It's sort of like, to use maybe a poor illustration, I've, I've got a phone here, right? And on one level, right, the phone is actually pretty simple. Like these phones nowadays barely have any buttons, right? You just sort of turn it on and there they are. You just can push away. And and most of us can figure out pretty quickly how to interact with a phone. The interface is designed so that you can get it really quickly, right? And the best apps and the best computer programmers make it really easy to access. Okay, fine. But Who among us really understands, and I'm sure there are some, but who among us really understands what's going on inside of that phone, right? In terms of the hardware and the silicon and the the circuits and all all of the inner workings, and then the computer programming, the hardware and the software. I mean, that's a whole nother level. So at some level, like a phone or even like a car, you might know where the gas goes and maybe even how to change oil. But when people start talking about pistons and cams and head gaskets, you're just like, ah, I don't know. Catalytic converters, I, you don't know what they're talking about. Now, there are, of course, people that do. And in the analogy here, those are the priests. Their job is to know what's going on and then to educate, to teach how it is that God has revealed himself to the people. Okay, now that's a long preamble, but it all really boils down to Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary. Bring your offerings, your free will, enthusiastic offerings, right? And bring them. And then we're going to construct a house. But it's not going to be a house according to your plans. 
It's going to be a very specific house that follows a pattern, a copy that Moses actually saw, that God gave Moses atop Sinai's summit. Okay? Very cool. Very, very cool. So uh, let's get into this. Um, one of the first things that emerges, in fact, I'll just read it and it'll come up. It'll come up. Uh, I'll go to the biblical passages in just a bit as they come up. So I'm on, uh, let's start in paragraph one. The command was communicated to Moses while in the mount with God. Let them make me a sanctuary that, right? And you can even insert the word so that, right? To, to sort of capture the point here that that functions in the, the, the function of that in this sentence. So that, in order that, I may dwell among them. And full directions, key word here, I underlined this word quite a little bit and I missed it right here in the first. Directions, right? There's a specific way. There's, there's instructions. There's directions. Full directions were given for the construction of the tabernacle. By their apostasy, the Israelites had forfeited the blessing of the divine presence, capital P. And for the time, they rendered this rendered impossible, the erection of the sanctuary for God among them. But after they were, and I loved this, again taken into favor with heaven, beautiful, the great leader proceeded to execute the divine command. Uh, then it goes on to say that there were basically people that were chosen, artisans, both male and female that were chosen. Some were going to be builders, and some were going to be doing embroidery, and others were going to be uh, casting metal. And all of these people came together, these skillful artisans, to take the offerings. And then Moses is like the foreman of the project, because Moses is the one, so far as I understand, the only one who has seen the blueprints, right? It's in his mind. And so he's literally describing what it is that he saw. And this is a key idea. This is one of the two or three major ideas in this chapter. And you have to get this idea down or none of this is going to make any sense. And that is this idea that what they're going to make is a copy, okay? Or the New Testament and the Old Testament both regularly use the word pattern. In fact, let's just quickly note how many times the word pattern occurs in Exodus uh, 25. We've already quoted verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Verse 9, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings, just so shall you make it. Now go to the last verse of that chapter, chapter 25, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So that's like maybe major point number two. Major point number one is God wants to be with his people, and that has to happen in a very specific way, okay? They're being taught, they're being educated, and God is going to give them this giant parable, this big um, series of illustrations to show how it is that they will be connected to God, not through shadows and symbols, but face-to-face -face eventually. Okay, how they will be at one with God. Atonement. At-one-ment. So that's sort of big idea number one. God wants to be with his people. He wants to be one with them. Big idea number two is that's going to happen through this building, through this tabernacle, and through the services associated with it that boil down to this idea that it's a pattern. It's a copy. This is not original with Moses. You know, Moses as an architect is not represented here. Moses is a foreman. God is the architect. Moses is simply relaying to the artisans, male and female, what it is that he saw and how they can make it. Okay, and so she uses language here. She quotes Hebrews chapter 9, copies of the true, 
This is in the second paragraph, copies of the things in heaven. And then she says, a miniature representation of the heavenly temple, where Christ, our great high priest, after offering his life as a sacrifice, was to minister in the sinner's behalf. Ah, okay. So this big idea number two is that, again, Moses as an architect is not represented here. This isn't Moses' idea. This is God's idea. Moses is going to execute what God has shown him. And so this idea of a copy, a model, a miniature, a pattern, crucial, absolutely crucial. And that word pattern comes up not only in the Old Testament here in Exodus, but also in the New Testament, right? And she quotes several of those verses here. For example, uh, at the end of the chapter, she quotes uh, Stephen's sermon uh, in Acts chapter 7. And when he's rehearsing the history of Israel, he says that God said to Moses, see that you make it according to the pattern. He's literally just quoting from Exodus. Exodus 25, 9, see that you make it according to the pattern. The author of Hebrews picks that up in Hebrews chapter 9 and uses this same language again. The pattern, the pattern, the copy. Okay, so that's the other big idea here. And um, I'm going to move through some of this a little quickly so that I can get to the big stuff, okay? Yeah, somebody says Moses, Moses is the project manager, Aspen Girl 07. Great to see you guys. That's exactly right. He's the project manager, right? He's the foreman. He's the one that's going to make sure that everything looks just like what God showed him on the mount. So clearly, this is designed to teach. It's pedagogical. It's instructive. It's a teaching device, okay? So um, they bring all of their jewels, and they do so with great enthusiasm. They bring their wares and their jewels and their thread and, they, and their wood. They go and find acacia wood. And acacia wood is very strong and very beautiful. Um, as you know, I love to play the guitar. And one of the guitars that I own is made of koa. And koa is a, an acacia wood that is native to the Hawaiian Islands. And it's beautiful. It's, it's, a, beautiful in, it's a beautiful wood, lots of really great patterns in it. And it uh, also has very nice resonance. It's got a, it's got a bell-like quality in a guitar. And so they're going to bring their wood, they're going to bring their offerings, they're going to bring their, their gold and their silver and their bronze, and they're going to make something, right? And so I'm, um, I just want to note here, she says, devotion to God and a spirit of sacrifice were the first requisites in preparing a dwelling place for the Most High. That's cool. And here again, here again, here again, man, how many times have we already noted that delegation is so crucial in God's way of doing governance, in God's way of ruling the universe, right? Like, God could have easily fully assembled, fully constructed, right? Out of, if he can create the, the universe, and he can create the solar system and the world just by speaking it into, into existence, he could have done that here. He could have just spoke this tabernacle into existence, and boom, there it is on the sanctuary floor. Absolutely perfect. No mistakes. No, no, uh, you know, lack of craftsmanship. It could have been absolutely perfect, but he doesn't. He involves them. He involves them. And then in that, that give and take where God makes a request and they come enthusiastically, voluntarily, now we got the gas turned on, right? Now we're not dancing around a golden calf in a giant, ridiculous orgy. Now we're learning. We're, we're understanding. We're growing. And there's a kind of momentum here, you know? This is, this is really beautiful. And the people are excited. In fact, they're so excited, they bring so much that eventually Moses has to say, we have enough. Imagine that situation happening in your local church, right? You're trying to raise money for a HVAC system or for some 
furniture or for a remodel or for a new building or a gym. And uh, the, the money's come in so rapidly, so quickly, so enthusiastically that the pastor, you know, stands up and she says on, you know, Sabbath morning, he says, she says, yeah, you've brought enough. Yeah, we're, okay, we're done with that project. We'll have another project later, but, but don't bring any more. We're, fill, we're full to the brim. I mean, I've never heard of that happening. I'm sure it has happened, but that's what's going on here. And so they're like, there's this enthusiasm. You get this sense like, hey, we've turned the corner and the golden calf is behind us. Israel, uh, Egypt is behind us. We're going forward and we're going forward with Yahweh. And uh, it's, it's really beautiful. I love it. She says here on page 414, all who love the worship of God and prize the blessing of his sacred presence will manifest the same spirit of sacrifice in preparing a house where we, where he may meet with them. Very cool, right? So in our local churches, whether it's a house or a, a large sanctuary or whatever, in the building of those facilities and in the um, you know, upkeep of them and in the remodeling of them, the last church I pastored in Kingscliff, Australia, we did a giant remodeling project. I mean, it was huge. And it cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And our campaign was called Bring It. And a big shout out to Sam Bonello, my good friend who actually came up with that. Bring it. And that's taken straight out of this section of Exodus. Bring your good, bring it. And it's really cool. It's a very cool play on words. Like, bring it. You know, we say, you know, it's kind of like a way of saying, bring your A game, bring your best, bring it. And uh, hallelujah, the church raised hundreds of thousands of dollars in, you know, in, 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 in quick, uh, uh, quick fashion, and uh, the church looked absolutely beautiful, and that's what she's saying here. Okay, similarly, in the way they did, we should too. Okay, now we get into the, the guts of it. Now we're going to lift up the hood. We've got our two big points. Number one, God wants to be with his people. Number two, this, this house, this sacred place is a building. Okay, so the first and most obvious thing here is that this building the internal building, there's a courtyard, right, that's going to sort of set this building apart from all the other tents that were just normal tents of dwelling, right, tents where the, the people lived. So you're going to have a courtyard, and then inside of that courtyard, you're going to have a building. And this building is going to be made up of two apartments, or two parts, right? So she says this on 414, the building was divided into two apartments, by a rich and beautiful curtain or veil suspended from gold-plated pillars. And if you took the time today, uh, which I read through, not all, but a large portion of Exodus 25 to 40, I mean, it goes into, you know, let's be honest, at some points, kind of, for us at least, excruciating detail, right? If you're not really invested in this, again, it really reads a little bit like an owner's manual, and she does a little bit of that here. So she's saying there's going to be these two compartments, and then there's going to be this this veil that separates the two parts. This will become very important. And then she goes into the detail. These are like the inner covering, which form the ceiling, which are of the most gorgeous colors, blue, purple, and scarlet, beautifully arranged, while inwrought with threads of gold and silver, where, where the cherubim were to represent the angelic host, who are connected with the work of the heavenly sanctuary, and who are ministering spirits. Okay, you get the idea. So for our purposes here in this devotional study, we're not going to do a deep dive on every detail of the tabernacle, what every, you know, color means, what every facet means, what every shape means, but I will recommend a couple books, okay? If you want to go on a deep dive into the sanctuary, I'll recommend, um, first of all, a really great book titled With Jesus in His Sanctuary by Leslie Harding, the late Leslie Harding. 
So you want to write that down. So with Jesus in his sanctuary by Leslie Harding, okay? Number one. Number two, if you want to go on a deep, deep dive into how the sanctuary worked, not so much the details and the colors and all of that. There is a little bit of that. But if you want to go into a deep dive, what about the sacrifices? And particularly, what about the Day of Atonement, which we'll get to here in just a bit? You want to read, it's a fairly scholarly book, not easy to read, but it's a deep dive by Roy Gain. Roy Gain, G-A-N-E, Gain. Um, Roy Gain, and that book is titled Cult and Character. Cult and Character. And I just want to emphasize again, it's a scholarly book that's a deep, deep dive. If you want to go not quite as deep, um, that's totally fine. Then I would recommend getting your hands on the New International Version, the, the New International um, ver Commentary, the New International Version Commentary on Leviticus and Numbers, also written by Roy Gain. That's outstanding. And in fact, I probably should have recommended that one first because cult and character uh, is like extremely scholarly. It's basically the outgrowth of his um, doctoral thesis. And, you know, he's probably, it would not be an exaggeration to say that Roy Gain is probably one of the top five most literate people on the latter third of Exodus and Leviticus and the sanctuary on the entire earth, including Jewish people. Right, like like Dr. Gaines' understanding of what's happening in these chapters is second to none. Okay. And so maybe that book's a little too deep for 95% of us, but I loved it. I loved it, but I'm I'm kind of a nerd that way. But a, a really great book that'll give you sort of some access is his commentary, also Roy Gain, um, from the NIV application series on Leviticus. Okay. And then, as I mentioned, if you want to get into sort of the, the, the structure and the colors and all of that. Um, I don't think you can do better than Leslie Harding's um, a book he wrote over, oh, it would be probably 30 years ago now or more, uh, With Jesus in His Sanctuary. Okay, so we're not going to do all of that here, but what we are going to do is notice that this building is made up of two apartments, okay? How many apartments, everyone? Two. And these are referred to as the holy place and then the most holy place. Okay, so the, the sacred location and then the very sacred location. Okay, and that's where God dwells atop the Ark of the Covenant in the physical manifestation of his presence called the Shekinah. Okay, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So she then goes through and starts describing really the things. So for example, she starts off with the courtyard on page 415, and I'm going to move through a lot of this pretty quickly. She talks about the courtyard, and the idea here is, is that it, it, it is set apart from the other just ordinary tents that the Israelites lived in. She then goes and talks a little bit about the ark. This is on page 416, and she actually uses a very important word for us here, a word that we've used repeatedly, and that is depository. Basically, the, the ark is a box. It's a, it's, a, it's a really fancy, really beautiful, gold-covered box. The, the ark itself contains something, and the thing that it contains is the Ten Commandments, right? So the Ten Commandments are placed into this ark, and then the lid of this box is called the mercy seat, and there's these two cherubim, or angels, that are crafted, and they face one another, and the Shekinah glory sits right there between the two angels and on top of the mercy seat. 
And uh, this is described in several biblical passages, not just here in Exodus, but for example, Psalm 80, verse 1, where the psalmist says, uh, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. Right? And so that, that shining forth, that Shekinah glory that dwelt between the cherubim was the very presence of Yahweh. Okay, so God, again, just to remind ourselves, God wants to dwell because we don't want to get lost in the weeds. It's very easy to get lost in the weeds here. So we need to keep the big picture big while we understand some of the details. And again, we're not going to do a deep dive on the details as such, except for a couple, the most important. But just to remind ourselves, God wants to dwell with his people, but he can't just dwell with them in any old haphazard way. No, it's going to be in a very specific way. And so you have the courtyard. Okay, so that sets this compound apart from everything else. This is holy. Then you have a building that's made up of two parts. One of them is holier, right? Because you have the larger courtyard, that's holy. The second compartment is holier. And then the third compartment is holiest, right? And probably this is as good a time as any to remind ourselves that the root word of holy, or I shouldn't say the root word, the, the idea of holy means different. It means other. Right? And so when we refer to God as being holy, we're saying he's different. He's other. He's unusual. He's not like the things that we're accustomed to. He's different. This is one of the reasons that God said to Moses, hey, remind the children of Israel, they didn't see any form or any likeness that they could fashion to be like me. I'm different. I'm not like those things. I'm holy. And it's actually really helpful to remind yourself of that again and again and again, because too often, when we, when we hear the word holy, we just reflexively say, oh, that means righteous. That means upright. That means, you know, behaving with, you know, moral rectitude. Now, that's true in the sense that that's the thing that makes God holy. He is righteous. He is morally upright. He is faithful. But the word holy means different. It means other. So now just think about that. You have all of these tents that the Israelites are dwelling in would have been thousands upon thousands of tents and dwellings, right? And then you have this particular dwelling, that this is where God lives, and this is holy. It's different. And then you have the, the, the courtyard, which is holy. Then you have, the again, the second compartment, well, the first compartment of the building, the second compartment of the whole compound, and that's, that's more holy. That's more different. And then you have the most holy place, which is the most different place. Well, what's so different about that? That's where God is. And it's so different, as we'll find, only the high priest can go in there, and even then, only once a year. Okay, so in the courtyard, the Israelites could come to the courtyard as long as they brought their sacrifice and complied with the conditions, which we'll get to in a second. So the, the priests are in the courtyard, and some Israelites could come into the courtyard, okay? But just ordinary Israelites weren't going into the holy place. The priests are going in and out of the holy place, right? And the priests are the family of Aaron, which is astonishing because we've already talked about the history of Aaron and the uh, reinstatement of Aaron into this incredibly important and privileged role, right? And then only the high priest goes into the most holy place and that only on the 10th day of the seventh month. So you have the ordinary which is all where the Israelites are dwelling, right? That's the common place. That's the community. The root word of, of uh, community is common. Then you have the holy courtyard, 
than the holier place and then the holiest place. And they're different. And they're progressively more intensely different. So hopefully that helps. And uh, right there in the ark, above the ark, is the mercy seat. That's where Yahweh dwells, right? This, this shining incandescent glow of Yahweh's presence is in that building. And you can just imagine how thrilling this would have been for the Israelites to know that they're literally traveling with God's house. It's just so cool. I mean, it's amazing. They had their houses. They had their tents that were made of canvas and acacia wood, and they would roll them up and go to the next location. They're traveling with God's house, his mobile house, right? And they set it all up, and when they get it all set up just right, when they arrive at a new location, Yahweh, the infinite, eternal, illimitable, ineffable God, the creator of the universe, comes and dwells in that tent, right? So you can just imagine, like, let's say you're walking around the camp of Israel, and you say, hey, uh, you guys know where um, Caleb set up his tent? Oh, yeah, yeah, Caleb's just down this row, uh, six more tents, then take a left, and he's the fourth tent on the right. Say, okay, great. And then somebody else might come by and say, hey, um, I'm looking for Micah and Hannah. Does anybody know where Micah and Hannah set their tent up? Oh, yeah, yeah. So you're going to want to go down this row, seven tents, and then take a right, and they're the third tent on the left. That's Micah and Hannah, right? So people had their tents. They had their dwellings. And then imagine you're like, hey, I'm, I'm looking for the uh, the tent of Yahweh. Yeah, is yeah. And they Everybody knew where the tent of Yahweh was because it was in the center of the camp. I mean, just think of how cool that is, right? Caleb's got his tent, and Moses has got his tent, and Aaron, and Miriam, and Micah, and, you know, just random Israelites have their tent. And then God, yeah, he's got his tent too. But you could just walk up to Micah's tent. Hey, Micah, are you here? Yeah, yeah, come on in. We're having some baba ganoush and some, you know, food, some manna. <laughs> and, uh, but you couldn't just walk into God's tent. That's the point. You can, you can get access to God because God has condescended to come down among you, but you can't just go walking up to God's tent. God is infinitely holy. This is the same God that when he was atop Mount Sinai and he spoke in such a way that, again, to use this illustration, and I know I've used it before, but like that fighter jet that flew over me in the eastern Sierras, it was just so loud and so vibrational, right? I felt terrified before I knew what it was. And even after I knew what it was, it was still scary, right? That same God with all of that power, with all of that energy, with all of that force. Remember what Ellen White said, we talked about this yesterday, that, that God's revelation of himself at Sinai was the greatest manifestation of power that the world had ever seen since creation, which includes, to remind you, the flood. So just think this through. That God, yeah, he's got a tent. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking for Yahweh's tent. Oh yeah, so what you're gonna wanna do here is you're gonna wanna go down right to the middle of camp. You're going to go by about 27 different tents, and you're going to hang a slight left, and Yahweh's tent is there. But every Israelite knew, because Moses and the priests made it very clear, you can't just go walking up to Yahweh's tent. He made a way, but there is a specific way, not ways, to be clear, a way that he could be approached. And I'll just throw this in as a little nugget. This, what, this is what makes it so significant that Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. I'm the way. It's also the same thing that Jesus was suggesting when he said in John, I am the door. I'm the door. I'm the way. Right? So anyway, she talks about the ark. She talks about the Shekinah. She talks about the, the law being in the ark, the box. 
Um, and then I'm on page 417, 417. And uh, the paragraph begins, no language. No language can describe the glory of the scene presented within the sanctuary. Well, there you have it. It was beautiful. And there's this great verse in, uh, let me just read it here. Exodus 28, verse 2. It, when it's speaking of the garments that Aaron and his uh, family were to wear when they ministered as priests, listen to this. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. That's cool. So the whole thing, not just the garments that Aaron wore, but the whole thing is supposed to be astonishingly beautiful. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to elicit curiosity and interest. And you're, you're supposed to want to go, hey, well, why this? And, and why that? And why did we? And, but it's just so beautiful. It's like a museum of holiness. Well, that's a really cool way. I just came up with that right now. It's like a museum of holiness, right? And, and she says, no language, I'll read it again, can describe the glory of the scene presented inside of the sanctuary, right? The incense smelled so good and the flickering light of the seven-branched candlestick that was to the south side of the sanctuary would just illumine these, you know, gilded tapestries. And then the Shekinah glory, the, the, the light, this incredible light of Yahweh is like seeping through the corners and crevices, like under a door or through a, you know, like around a windowsill, you know, a, a tightly closed windowsill, but you can still see it. It's like seeping in. It was beautiful and it smelled good. And it was, it was amazing. Okay, so it takes them like half a year to build this, right? It takes them a long time to, to build it. And so they get it all built. And when they finally get it built, this is on page 417, she says that the cloud comes, the cloud of Yahweh's presence comes and dwells over the tent. As a, as a unambiguous affirmation of the building, of the specifics that it had been followed, that this looked like the pattern, and that God wants to inhabit this building. And that means he wants to dwell with his people. So this is just too good. I got to read this. This is page 417, middle of the long paragraph that begins a period of about a half a year. Let's just jump down a little bit. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There was a revealing of the divine majesty. And for a time, even Moses could not enter. With deep emotion, the people beheld the token of the work the token that the work of their hands was accepted. When, they, when the cloud comes over, they realize God likes it. He's going to live here. He's going to inhabit this. There were no loud demonstrations of rejoicing. Probably people are half thrilled and half terrified, which is exactly the point, right? Like remember Exodus 20, 20, where, God, where Moses says, hey, don't be afraid. God has just come down to make you afraid so that you won't sin. And so the people are like, they're absolutely thrilled and they're rejoicing and they're happy, but this is not a time to act in a way that would have been perceived as out of line or not in keeping with the solemnity of the moment. And so it says, with deep emotion, the people beheld the token that the work of their hands was accepted. There were no loud demonstrations of rejoicing. A solemn awe rested upon all, but the gladness of their hearts welled up, this is beautiful, in tears of joy. And they murmured low, earnest words of gratitude that God had condescended to abide with them. That's the punchline, right? That's the punchline, and I'm going to underline that here, that God had condescended, another word there, a synonym, that God had stooped, that God had stooped to dwell with them 
and, and their tears are coming down their cheeks. Probably many of them are remembering what happened when Moses came down the, the mountain and threw down the tablet of, of the law, uh, symbolizing that the covenant was broken, and then the 3,000 obstinate, obstinate idolaters, were, idolaters were slain, and they're realizing this could have been us, and yet here we are, here we are months later, and we've crafted this building to God's exact specifications, and God is happy, and they're just with great joy and great happiness, and with tears running down their cheeks, simultaneously terrified of Yahweh's incredible power, but also aware that this God of great power and of great holiness and of great beauty wants to dwell with them. I mean, isn't this just, in my margin, I just wrote scene, question mark. I mean, what a scene this is. Wow. Okay, then she spends time talking about the tribe of Levi. I've got to pick this up a little bit. She then spends a bunch of time talking about the, the, the dress of the priests, which I've already quoted you there. Uh, Exodus 28.2, you shall make holy garments, different garments, right? Unusual garments, holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Very cool. And she goes into that on page 418. That continues for the whole next page. And then one of my favorite sections, and I'm just going to drop a little... Just a little bomb here. And if you get this, let's see, what's Victor saying? It's crazy to me how much people dedicated themselves and their resources to building God's house. And many churches today are left as an afterthought, not, not taken care of, barely uh, built with quality. You're not wrong about that, by the way. That's one of the things that when we were doing the um, remodeling at the church that I pastored in Australia, I was saying, you guys, come on, I've been to a lot of your homes and your homes are in much better condition and are much better furnished than God's house. Like that's not, that's not acceptable, right? And that's not me like condemning you. That's saying, let's create a situation and let's launch a, um, an initiative where we're going to bring God's house up to code, right? And I don't mean like municipal code. I mean, let's bring God's house up to look at least as nice as the houses that we live in, right? Because God's house in Israel was far more ornate and beautiful. It's a great point, Victor. Okay, now I'm going to drop this little, just a little something on you here. And uh, look at Exodus 28. She quotes it here, Exodus 28, verse 36. Okay, so this is describing the garments that the priest would wear and uh, the high priest as well. So 28, 36 says, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holiness to Yahweh. Okay, this is to sit on the inside of the hat, the miter, that the high priest wears right across his forehead, holiness to Yahweh, set apart for Yahweh. Now, there's so much going on here because the high priest, of course, anticipates Jesus, who in his mind and in his heart could say at every moment of his life, I do always those things that please him, that please God, right? And so the priest here as a symbol, as a figure of Jesus in his forehead is set apart fully and, and completely for God's service, for God's glory and for God's beauty. And so it says there, verse 36, holiness to the Lord, verse 37, and you shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban and it shall be on the front of the turban. So right here at the, at the prefrontal cortex, right, right here at the crucial part of the brain, then check this out. Verse 38 is phenomenal and it's easy to misunderstand and I'll explain it as we go. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron shall bear the iniquity of the holy things 
which the children of Israel hallow in all of their holy gifts, and it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before Yahweh. Okay, now, what? Did you catch that? Okay, let me just go over this, and, and this is, again, there's layers of complexity here, and we're only going to be, you know, if there's 10 layers of complexity in the sanctuary, we're going to be in the top two layers, okay? But just get this one point, that, that Moses, uh, Aaron is fully set aside to the high priestly ministry going in and out of the, the tabernacle, the place where God lives, God's house, and it says that he has on his forehead holiness to the Lord, and it always has to be there so that he can bear the iniquity of the holy things. Okay, iniquity means sin. So let's just insert that word. So that Aaron can bear the sin of the holy things. Wait, that sounds like a contradiction in terms. The sin of the holy things? Okay, and it's right at this point that we come to the biggest idea. I would say the third big idea and the biggest of the ideas. Well, I think they're all probably equally big. Number one, God wants to dwell with us. Number two, the sanctuary and all of the accoutrements of the sanctuary are according to a pattern. And number three, there is this tension between cohabitating holiness and sinfulness in the sanctuary, okay? That they simultaneously exist in the same place, okay? That, that defilement is taking place in the sanctuary, but that God also resides there. Now, you're like, what? how does that work? Well, that's what I'm going to try and explain here. And in order to do that, I need you to come with me to page 423. I know I've skipped over a few pages. Um, but again, you can do a deep dive uh, through the books that I've recommended here, the uh, NIV application commentary by Roy Gain on Leviticus, the very, very, very deep dive, Cult and Character, also by Roy Gain, and then with Jesus and His Sanctuary, another great book that I'll recommend, also by Roy Gain. And the reason I'm recommending three books by Roy Gain is that he's literally like one of the world's foremost experts on this subject. There's probably not a person on earth that knows more about these things than him. Okay, he's a, an extraordinary person. Anyway, this is a really cool book, a newer book. I think it was just published a few years ago. Published in 2017, titled Old Testament Law for Christians. Old Testament Law for Christians. And this is a very, very excellent resource. Also a scholarly book, so it's a deep dive. Okay, to be clear, it's a deep dive. It's not just a casual reading book. It's a Bible study for how it is that we understand all of these instructions and details that God gives to the children of Israel through Moses in the Pentateuch. Like, what do we keep? What do we discard? What remains? What has passed away? What has been fulfilled? What has not been fulfilled? And uh, Gain does an outstanding job in this book, The Old, Te Old Testament Law for Christians, of walking through how we, what we keep, what we retain, what has been fulfilled, and why. Why? And so he gets into these questions about continuity into the old, into the New Testament, continuity into the New Covenant, and discontinuity. And I won't say any more except to say that I, I know I've just recommended several books by Dr. Gain, but that's because um, he's he's the guy, right? He's the one who knows this as well as anybody. Okay, now I'm going to spend the rest of I'm going to spend the next ten or fifteen minutes explaining this one idea, 
And if you get this one idea, then you kind of get the whole thing, okay? Okay, I should say if you get these three ideas. So the first idea, number one, is God wants to dwell with his people, check. Uh, number two, the sanctuary and all of the accoutrements, including the priestly garments and clothes, were an accoutrement, okay? That's number two. They were according to a pattern. That's what I should say. They were all according to a pattern. Then thirdly, and this is this is big, and, and I wrote this down in my notes, so if you're paying attention to Instagram and you don't get all of this, you can look at it in my notes. Okay, I've even drawn a little, okay, I've even drawn a little model of the sanctuary there to illustrate what I'm talking about. And here it is. Without further ado, let me just say this. At the most basic, basic, basic level, what the sanctuary teaches, the sanctuary that God gave to Moses to give to the children of Israel, this is what it teaches. Okay, you ready? It teaches that atonement, at-one-ment, okay, or re reconciliation, reconnection, restoration, whatever you want to use, that, that God becomes one with his people, right, like, like in Eden, through a two-phased atonement. That's the punchline. That's our third big idea, that it, it takes place in a two-phased atonement. Okay, so write that down. And if you're not taking notes, listen very carefully. Two phases, two distinct phases. Okay, it doesn't just happen in one phase. Something about the atonement, something about the restoration and the reconnection of God's sinful people to himself, passing through that tension of, of getting rid of defilement, getting rid of sin, and into the presence of the holy, infinitely holy presence of Yahweh, this doesn't happen in one step. It happens in two steps. I'm going to say this like 5,000 times, okay? It happens in two steps, two phases, two compartments, right? Remember, there's the holy place and the most holy place, right? And those places, including the courtyard as well, which is really in a way a third, right? That's the, that's the, the, uh, parameter or the, the perimeter rather that surrounds the building. All of this is holy and God assigns in the latter part of Exodus the, the details of this and then in the whole of Leviticus, which if you think the latter third of Exodus reads like an instruction manual, Leviticus reads like an instruction manual. It's what it is. It's an instruction manual on how to do the sanctuary. So let's just imagine, let's go back to that scene where they're all there and they're crying and they're weeping and the and the tears of great joy, but also an awareness of the holiness of Yahweh are in their mind. And the cloud comes and it hovers over, saying, I accept, I receive, I love the house, I'm going to live here. Of course he loves it, it's his own design. Okay, now, this is a little bit like, um, let's just say, a, a restaurant or a bank or something that's going to be used. When they have the grand opening, that just means that everything is in place. But then you have to get people to go in there to actually do the things to, in the case of a restaurant, to make the food, in the case of a bank, to do the transactions. And in the case of the sanctuary, you got to do what it is that's going to be done here to shed uncleanness, to shed uh, defilement and sin, and to receive forgiveness, mercy, and holiness. Okay, so now what happens is in Leviticus, Moses explains what God explained to him, how this place functions, okay? It's not just 
It's not just a piece of art that you look at. No, stuff is happening in there. Stuff is happening in there, and there's different ceremonies and different sacrifices, and, and this is why in Cult and Character, the book that I recommended by Gain, is a deep, deep, deep dive into all of the, not all, but a significant part of the details of this sanctuary. Okay, but I'm telling you at, at the most basic level that what's happening here is a two-phased reconnection, a two-phased at one two phases. And the, I'm just trying to think of how to, how to dive into this. Okay, the two phases happen. The first phase, the, the phase that is, that is taking place 359 days out of a Jewish year. There's 360 days in a Jewish year. 359 days out of that year, sin is being transferred into the sanctuary. Okay, so you're on page 423. 423, and I'm just going to read some of this. Uh, this is uh, page 355 of the original. So it says, the most important part, that's how the paragraph begins, the most important part of the daily ministration, 359 days out of the year, was the service performed in behalf of individuals. The repentant sinner brought his offering to the door of the tabernacle and placing his hand upon the victim's head, the sacrifice, he confessed his sins, thus in figure transferring. Underline it. Thus in figure transferring. And figure means like a model, like an illustration. Transferring, key word. Transferring them, the sin, from himself to the innocent sacrifice. Okay, so he places his head his hand on the head of the sacrifice, he confesses his sin, and that sin is then transferred symbolically to the animal. Okay, now watch. By his own hand, the animal was then slain, and the blood, the blood now becomes like the carrier, the depository of that sin, because the wages of sin is death, and when the sin was confessed on the animal, it didn't get to live, it had to die. So you don't die, the animal dies. Right? You don't bear the shame and the guilt and the sin of your defilement. The animal bears it, but the moment that the animal bears it, the animal is slain humanely. The blood was then captured by the priest, and that blood now contains the defilement. This is key. This is the point. The blood contains the defilement. The blood was innocent right up until the point that the sin was confessed on it. Now it is contaminated. It is defiled, and that, that defiled, contaminated blood is caught by the priest in a bowl. Now watch this. It was carried by the priest into the holy place and sprinkled before the veil, which was the ark containing the law that the sinner had transgressed. By this ceremony, the sin was, through the blood, transferred in figure. Okay, there it is again. Same words. Figure and transfer. Transferred in figure or by, by symbol, by illustration to the sanctuary. Ah, okay, so I'm going to keep this as simple as possible. The sin was going, the defilement was going from the sinner to the animal. The animal dies. It goes to the blood. The priest carries the blood, right? The priest acting in the role of Jesus here. And all you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was the lamb that's slain. Yes. Yeah, he's the lamb. Check. And he's the priest. Check. And he's the high priest. Check. And he's the sanctuary itself, check. And he's the showbread, check. He's everything. The whole thing is so, years ago I went to the Smithsonian and I saw the Hope Diamond, which I think is maybe the most famous and most you know, costly diamond in the whole world. And uh, if you've ever seen the Hope Diamond, it's this giant, like almost baseball-sized diamond 
that they've got sitting in this cabinet that they shine these lights into and the diamond just slowly spins. And as the diamond slowly spins, all of these rays and colors are shooting out. All of the facets or the cuts of the diamond are seen and the beauty is multidimensional. It's beautiful here and it's beautiful here and it's beautiful here. everywhere is beautiful. The sanctuary is beautiful everywhere and all of it is like a rotating diamond that points to Jesus, points to God's faithfulness, points to the plan of salvation. Everything points to Jesus. Every single thing in some way is pointing to Jesus and to the plan of salvation. So let's go back to our point here. The sin is confessed onto the animal. It's captured. The blood is captured. The animal dies. The blood is captured. It goes into the sanctuary. 359 days out of a year, the blood goes in, the blood goes in, the blood goes in, the blood goes in. It's transferred in figure. Okay, now I'm going to keep this very simple. On the 10th day of the seventh month, so this is the day of atonement, which in the, the calendar year of the Israelites, this was the fifth of the festivals, right? The, 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 in their six annual festivals, and this is the fifth of those festivals, right? The second to the last of the festivals. Second only, uh, last, uh, the last one is the festival, the, the festival, <laughs> the, the feast or the festival of booths, right? That's how the calendar year ends, or tabernacles. That's how the Jewish calendar year ends. So on that day, the 10th day of the seventh month was called Yom Kippur, or the day of atonement is how we render that in English. The day, listen to the language, the day of atonement. And I'm going to make this really simple. I know I keep saying that, but here it is. On that day, the high priest goes into the most holy place with blood that had no sin confessed on it. So it doesn't contain any sin, right? Two goats were brought to the tabernacle. Lots were cast to the door of the tabernacle. One was called the scapegoat. We'll come to that in just a second. And the other was slain with no sin confessed on it. So that's like an empty, clean, pure, innocent container of blood. The high priest then goes not just into the holy place, he certainly has to go through that, then he goes beyond the veil, pulls back that veil into the very presence of Yahweh. And he goes to the mercy seat, stands in front of the mercy seat, and can you imagine? I mean, I don't even know, I don't know what this was like, but literally standing, standing with no with nothing, in the presence of the Shekinah. This is a Moses-like experience, right? In the same way that Moses dwelt in the very presence of God atop Sinai, the high priest on this one day dwells in the very presence of Yahweh. And he has this sin, this, this, this sinless blood, and he applies this sinless blood to the mercy seat. He sprinkles it on the mercy seat. And thus... In figure, he then transfers, and it's more complicated than this. You can read the precise details in Leviticus 16, and then you can, again, go read the books that I've already recommended. What's happening is, is that he then transfers the sin out of the sanctuary. Bam. Two phases. Phase one in, phase two out. That's it. That's, that's the sanctuary. You got your three big ideas. Number one, God wants to dwell with his people. Number two, it can't happen in just any old willy-nilly way. It has to happen according to the pattern that God has established. And number three, on the 
majority of days, 359 days out of the year, the sin goes in, 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 the defilement goes in, in, in. And on the one day, the day of at-one-ment, the sin is swept out. There's only one entrance, right? There's only one entrance to the, it's not like side doors. This is why Jesus says that he that comes from the side is a thief and a robber. No, you got to come in through the door. And if you had to sweep a room, like if I had to sweep this room that I'm in right now, and there's just one door over there, I'm going to start in the far corner and I'm going to sweep to the door. That's what's happening. And, and the high priest goes in and he sweeps the defilement out of the sanctuary. And this is what we mean by a two-phased atonement. In the first phase, and this is such a cool point, in the first phase, the sinner places the sin onto the animal and the animal then dies and the sin goes into the sanctuary. Now, this is incredible. The sinner, as it were, walks away and he's largely unmindful of everything that happens after that, right? Like, like something has died in his place. His defilement has been transferred. It died, he gets to live. That's the plan of salvation. And that's what happens when we confess our sins, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Bam, that happened 359 days out of the year. But then all of that accumulated defilement, all of that accumulated guilt had stained the holy things of the sanctuary. Let me read it again. I'll just read it again. Exodus 28, beginning in verse 36. You shall make also a plate of pure gold and engrave it like the engraving of a sign, holiness to the Lord, and you will put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban on the front of Aaron's turban. Verse 38. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts, and it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. Well, now we begin to understand this incredible tension of holy things coexisting with defilement. How did the holy things get defiled? Because all of that sin, all of that defilement, all of that iniquity that was confessed by God's people was transferred into the sanctuary. Phase one. Then on the day of at-one-ment, the high priest goes to the back of the room and sweeps all that defilement out by the sinless blood of the goat, which anticipates Jesus. Okay, now there's, there's greater depth here. And, you know, again, there's 10 layers of complexity. We've gone down to like layer 1.5, maybe two. If you get this idea of a two-phased atonement, you basically get it. That is the whole of, of what Scripture is teaching here. I shouldn't say the whole. That's the kernel of what Scripture is teaching here regarding the sanctuary. And this is the centerpiece of Dr. Gain's research. And I'll just say something kind of interesting. Even though Dr. Gain, Roy Gain, who I've mentioned several times before, is a Seventh-day Adventist. He's a Seventh-day Adventist that teaches at the seminary in, uh, at Andrews University, Bering Springs. When it came time for the New International Version, so you know that I've got one here. So the New International Version of the Bible is a Bible that is basically an evangelical Bible. It's a Christian Bible that scholars from all different stripes and types and, and denominations and inclinations, they come together and they just say, look, we're going to lay aside insofar as it's possible our denominational you know, commitments and differences, and we're just going to try to figure out what does the text say? And so they translate just like the New King James or the NASB or whatever. But in the NIV case, they come together as a multi-denominational, interdisciplinary group, and they translate. So then they 
in addition to their Bible, they have a commentary series, the New International Application Commentary Series. And they have this kind of, you know, popular level, somewhat, you know, uh, involved, but fairly popular level commentary to help people to understand what the Bible is teaching. That's what commentaries do. So as they're thinking, right, again, these are evangelical scholars, as they're thinking and sort of, hmm, who can we get to do, so they're going to get a certain scholar to do Matthew, they get a scholar to do Isaiah, they get a scholar to do Genesis, they get a scholar to do, so they're getting all these scholars, sometimes a team of scholars, to do a book, their area of expertise, and they want to get, you know, a person that is at the, the top of their field in that particular book. Well, when it comes time to get somebody to do Leviticus, who do they get? They get a Seventh-day Adventist scholar named Roy Gain, Dr. Roy Gain. Why? Because, number one, because he understands the thing better, again, than just about anybody. And number two, because it's Seventh-day Adventists, and not only Seventh-day Adventists, but largely Seventh-day Adventists that care about this. Right? Like, not that, not that there aren't Christians that like the book of Leviticus. I suppose there probably are some. But for, for Seventh-day Adventists, because of our understanding of this two-phased atonement, we have been fascinated by the latter third of Exodus and all of Leviticus and incredible books like Daniel and Revelation because there's so much that, that, that reverberates out of and echoes off of the sanctuary that God gave to Moses, which makes a lot of sense. That's why when we get to the book of Revelation, we see the actual temple and Jesus is walking among the seven, you know, branched candlestick there. He's in the actual sanctuary in heaven. He's just like Aaron was a, was a figure or a, a type. Jesus is the real thing. And so I just want you to think about how extraordinary that is. Who do they get to write that commentary? Well, they get somebody that understands it. And I've read the commentary. It's outstanding. And Gain makes this point. There's two phases. There's the in phase and the out phase. The transfer in and the sweeping out. And if you get that, then you basically get this chapter. If you turn the page, 424, and I've gone really long here. I've probably gone into more detail than I had planned to. If you go to 424, um, this is 355 of the original. The, the paragraph begins, important truths, let me just read this quickly. Important truths concerning the atonement were taught the people by this yearly service, the yearly service, the day of atonement service. In the sin offerings presented during the year, a substitute had been accepted in the sinner's stead, but the blood of the victim had not made full atonement for the sin, right? Because it had all gone in, but the defilement was still in there, right? As far as the sinner was concerned, experientially, he or she is now forgiven, but the defilement has not been fully dealt with. She says, it had only provided a means by which the sin was transferred to the sanctuary. There's your word, transferred. By the offering of blood, the sinner acknowledged the authority of the law, confessed the guilt of his transgression, and expressed his faith in him who was to take away the sin of the world. But he was not entirely released from the condemnation of the law. Why not? Well, because on the day of atonement, the high priest, having taken an offering from the congregation, went into the most holy place with the blood and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat above the tables of the law. Thus, the claims of the law, which demanded the life of the sinner, but the sinner's still alive because the animal died, were satisfied. Then, in his character of mediator, acting as the mediator, the, the figure of the mediator, which is Jesus, 
The me, uh, then in his character of the mediator, the priest took the sins upon himself and leaving the sanctuary, watch this, he bore with him the burden of Israel's guilt, which is just another way of saying he transferred it out of the sanctuary. So it goes in 359 days out of the Jewish calendar year, and it goes out on the Day of Atonement. Two phases, in, out. And when it goes in, the sanctuary, even the holy things of the sanctuary, become defiled. And so Aaron, as the high priest, as a type of Christ, has to bear that in himself, in his high priestly ministry, and this is described in great detail in the book of Hebrews. He ministers as the great high priest that Aaron anticipated, that Aaron typified, and he takes that sin, he takes that defilement out of the sanctuary. And that, my friends, is what's going on here. Uh, in the second to the last, uh, on the very last page, she says, um, she talks about the removal of sin. This is second to the, the second to the last paragraph. Um, Christ's work for the redemption of men and the purification of the universe from all sin will be closed by the removal of sin from the heavenly sanctuary. This is so cool. God is not only trying to deliver us from the penalty of sin, which happens on, in the daily service, God wants to deliver us from the power of sin. And that's what takes place in the sanctuary, right through the table of showbread and the seven-branch candlestick. And if I'm not careful here, I'm going to go deeper again, okay? But here's a really, really cool way to think about this, okay? It's a little simplistic, but I maybe you'll like it. In the sort of three compartments or the three areas of the sanctuary, you have the courtyard, then the holy place, then the most holy place, okay? Here's a really cool way to think about this. In the courtyard, when you confess, when the Israelite confessed their sin over the animal, and then they went away and the animal died, they were delivered from the number one, the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. In the holy place with the table of showbread, which what is what Jesus is referring to when he says in John chapter 6, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And the oil that kept the the the, the candle uh, the the candle um, the seven branch candlestick burning, right? And then the incense, which is the the intercessory ministry of Jesus, all of that delivers us from the power of sin in our life. Jesus delivers us from the power of sin. The bread symbolizes His word, right? By every by every, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we're delivered from the power of sin in the holy place. And then in the most holy place, on the day of atonement, we are delivered even from the presence of sin when sin is removed, not just from me personally, but from the whole of the camp and is taken outside into the wilderness on the head of the scapegoat. Okay, so do you get it? Courtyard, delivered from the penalty. Holy place, delivered from the power of sin. Most holy place, delivered from the presence of sin. Sin is taken out and away and it's removed from the camp. And I'll read the last paragraph. Thus, in the ministration of the tabernacle and of the temple that afterward took its place, Solomon's temple, which we'll talk about later, the people were taught each day the great truths relative to Christ's death and ministration. And once each year, the minds were carried forward to the closing events of the great controversy between Christ and his enemy, Satan, the final purification of the universe from sin and sinners. And sinners here means, 
The word sinners here, the very last word in the chapter means not just ordinary sinners like you and I that have confessed our sins and have asked for forgiveness. This is the incorrigibly sinful, those that have identified with sin to such a degree that they refuse to voluntarily and enthusiastically confess their sins, receive the righteousness of Christ, and let the blood of Jesus cover them. They're incorrigibly wicked. Their sins, check this out, because they didn't avail themselves of the daily ministration, the sin never went into the sanctuary. Their sin didn't go into the sanctuary. And if your sin didn't go into the sanctuary, then your sin's not going to be a part of that defilement and sin that is swept out of the sanctuary. And so who bears your sin? You bear your sin. Okay, so, so that's the point. If we participate in the daily service by confessing our sin, we don't bring lambs anymore. We don't bring these animals to the sanctuary. We go to the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world and we confess our sins. And when we do that, our sin goes into the sanctuary. And friends, if you've done that, if you've complied with those conditions and, and you are daily, by God's grace, being transferred from the power of sin to the power of God, then you have nothing to worry about on the day of atonement when your sin is finally and fully extirpated from not just the sanctuary, but she's saying here, from the universe itself. Now there's more here. There's a lot, lot, lot more here. But if you get these three big ideas, number one, God wants to dwell with his people and this can't happen in just any old willy-nilly way. It's going to be in a very specific way where holiness is going to have to live in tension with sin and defilement, number one. Number two, that's why it has to be according to this pattern and not just the pattern of the building itself, but all of the services. It has to happen in a specific way because they have a pedagogical use. They're designed to teach us something. And the thing they're teaching us, the primary thing they're teaching us is that sin and holiness cannot eternally coexist. They can coexist for a time, but eventually there will come that 10th day of the seventh month when there is at one month and the sin is removed from the sanctuary, it's removed from the camp, and it is permanently put away. And this happens not in one step, but say it with me, in two steps. In and out. Daily, yearly. And hopefully, all of that made sense. And it was, I honestly thought this would be a short lesson, but I just went really deep. And so now let me quickly do the rubric. Okay, this is going to be one of the longest ones, maybe the longest one yet. Here we go. Rubric very quickly. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. The point, to introduce the reader to the beauty and glory of the Israelite sanctuary, to explain some of the symbolism and big ideas, and to uplift Jesus' sacrificial ministry and his high priestly ministry. That's the point of this chapter. And again, it's an unusual chapter relative to some of the other chapters that we've had about the life of Joseph and the travels of Jacob, etc. Okay, what do we learn about the person? What do we learn about God in this chapter? Well, we learn a great deal. We learn that God is holy, he's different, and he's beautiful, and also that he's a teacher, right? All of this was designed to teach. Moses taught the priests, the priests then understood it, and the priests then taught the people. Hey, why am I doing it? And why do you do that? Hey, I'm so glad you asked. The reason that, and they were the instructors, they were the educators. So God is holy, he is beautiful, and he is a teacher. How do we pray this chapter? Well, here's what I wrote. Practical application, Father, make me a temple for the indwelling of your holy presence by the Spirit. Help me to appreciate and to understand 
the ministry of Jesus, the multifaceted ministry of Jesus, the hope diamond ministry of Jesus. As lamb, as priest, as high priest, as king, as tabernacle, Jesus is all of these things. Help me to understand that. And how do I practice this chapter? Well, how about this one for a really, really super practical point of application? Help me, Father, to bring my offerings, especially the offering of my body and my soul, voluntarily and enthusiastically. May I have that same generous, enthusiastic spirit that the Israelites had when they were asked to bring their offerings. Amen. Amen. I just got convicted by the Spirit. And then finally, the promise. Well, here it is, friends, and it's beautiful. The promise of this whole story of the sanctuary is that God wants to dwell with us. And not just that he wants to, but that according to John chapter 1, verse 14, and according to the whole story of the Gospels, God did dwell with us in flesh. The moving, living, breathing, fleshly tabernacle that is Jesus. And I'll just say one really cool thing about that. The, 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 the tabernacle in the wilderness was actually a very plain building from the outside. And God gave specific instructions about this. It was supposed to look just quite plain on the outside. There's, there was not decoration and ornamentation on the outside. But on the inside, remember what Ellen White says? She said, words cannot contain how beautiful it was on the inside. The smells, the reflection, the light, the, 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 you know, is there, a, is there a smell better in the world than fresh baked bread? And that bread was put in there every day, the bread of his presence, or every Sabbath. So you, all this beautiful smells, now here's the thing, this, this anticipates Jesus, who was just ordinary looking on the outside, he just looked like everybody else, he looked like a human being. Six foot tall, you know, brown hair, brown eyes, dark skin, calloused hands, just looks like everybody else. But on the inside, he's beautiful. He's, there's layers of beauty and complexity because he's God in the flesh. He is the tabernacle. All of that pointed forward to Jesus. Ordinary looking on the outside, people say, that guy, that's the Messiah. One of the things that Ellen White says in The Desire of Ages, this is, and we made this point in DA with DA over and over again, when people would come up to Jesus, they were like disappointed in him because they'd heard all these stories, like Jesus is this and he's that, and they were like, whoa, I can't wait to meet this guy. And they saw him, they're like, this guy? This guy here, this is the guy. He was just very ordinary looking on the outside. He was just an average person. But what was going on on the inside was beautiful. I delight to do thy will, O oh my God. Yes, thy law is within my heart. Just like the law was in the, in the depository of the ark, the law was in the heart of Jesus. What is that? Psalm 40, verse 8. Incredible. So the word here, um, and I'm, I'm going to just kind of tell you my word here up front, and I'll be very interested to see what your words are. My word is transfer. Transfer. And there's a lot of great words that you could do here. You could do dwell, you could do holy. Um, there's a lot of great words. Hold off on your words for just a second. Let me tell you why I chose transfer. There's five reasons. Number one, God transferred from Sinai's summit into the camp of Israel. He transferred into the camp of Israel. Number two, the people transferred their belongings to God. They said they brought their offerings. They transferred their offerings into God's service, right? They voluntarily, enthusiastically brought their, so they transferred what was theirs. And they said, hey, no, this is now God's, not mine anymore. I'm giving it to God, number two. Number three, the sin was transferred into the sanctuary. 
We've already talked about that in the daily service. Number four, you know what I'm going to say here. The sin was transferred from the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. And then fifthly and finally, God's people will be transferred to be one with him cosmically, ultimately, eventually. We will be transported into that very place where we will dwell, not in shadows and symbols. The Apostle Paul says, now we see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. We will be transferred to a place where we will literally, bodily, physically dwell in the very presence of God. And so there are at least five reasons why my word was transfer, and I'm very interested to see what your words were. Okay, um, awe, great word. Um, worship, yep, excellent word. V very much what's going on here is worship. Megan says, wow, just wow, amen. I totally agree. This is such a beautiful teaching. And uh, the, the depth here is, you almost can't plumb the depths of it. Okay, deliverance, great. Exchange, excellent word. That really captures especially the daily service. Abide, I like that, CJ girl. It's the whole point of everything. God wants to abide with his people. Brilliant. Um, let's see here. Joanne M. Bachelor says, um, God can save me from it all. Don't worry. Be happy. Okay, I agree with that. I'm somebody that uh, you don't have to tell me to be happy. <laughs> I'm, all, I'm in a continual state of happiness. Um, reverence, says Chris. Close, says Eve. Great word. Oh, it looks like I've missed a lot of the people's words. Put them up again if you don't mind. Figure, great word. Dwell, great word. Tabernacle, dwell. Viceland says, such great beauty. Totally agree. Condescended, great word, Reiner. Sacred says, wit's messy. That's good. Cleansing. Closeness. Oh, that's a really good word. Sort of captures the relational intimacy of with. Devotion. Abide. Pattern. Great word. Great word, Carl. Um, patterns. Direction. Presence. Ah, fascinatingly, nobody seems to have had my word. Details. Pattern. Presence. All these words are great words, by the way. If you get the idea of transfer, oh, by the way, I-S-N-E-E-R-74, I see you have a DA with DA shirt on. Woo! Presence. Sacrifice. Pattern or shadow. Transferred. Sandy Patifer. Hey! I like the way you think. I think you're the one that had me change my mind on yesterday's word, wasn't it? From victorious to overruled. I think it was you. Deliverance, transfer, says Anne-Marie. Beautiful. Well, listen, everybody, I hope that was a blessing to you. It was a long one, and apologies for that. The real, the goal here is to try to keep it as close to an hour as possible. Um, but, you know, we just went Maybe, and you saw how quickly I moved through the chapter. I mean, we just raced through it. I had a lot of stuff I wanted to point out in the actual text of Scripture um, in Exodus 25 to 40. And, and we just, you know, you don't want to listen to me talk for two hours. So I got I to cut it. I got to cut it at an hour and a half. I hope this chapter was a blessing to you. Remember the three big points. Number one, God wants to dwell with you. Personalize this. Personalize it. God wants to dwell with me. Number one. Number two. That sanctuary was just a pattern. It was a copy. It was a miniature. The real thing, the real McCoy, the real deal is going on right now in heaven where Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Hallelujah, glory of glories, right? And number three, when we daily confess our sin, if it's going in, if Jesus is bearing our sin in, then hallelujah, 
when the day of atonement comes, the day of at one of reconnection, restoration, reconciliation with God, then our sin will go out, and not just out, but friends, permanently out, out of the heavenly sanctuary, out of the universe, and out of existence, because the fiery presence of Yahweh will consume sin and incorrigible sinners, and then we won't have to do OT with DA via YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. We will be dwelling, right? It will be e- eternity with, with JC, right? That's good. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. I hope you all love that. I hope you had a great day today. I'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place, chapter 31 tomorrow. What is our chapter tomorrow? Chapter 31 tomorrow is, oh, the law and the covenants. Oh, oh no, no, excuse me. That's the next day. The sin of Nadab and Abihu. This is a short, short chapter. So tomorrow I'll make up for it. We'll be, I'm going to say it right now. I'm going on record publicly. Tomorrow will be under an hour. I'm going on record. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and thank you. And Lord, the great truth of the sanctuary, truths, plural, of the sanctuary are amazing, incredible, incomprehensible. But Father, insofar as we can grasp them, insofar as we can understand them, help us to internalize them, not just to see them as theological ideas or ancient, you know, pictures and images or figures, but Father, help us to internalize them, to personalize them and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. All of this is designed to teach me that God wants to be with me. God wants to be near me. But I can't just go into God's presence in any old willy-nilly, haphazard, careless way. I have to go in through the righteousness of Christ, the blood of Christ, the ministry of Christ. Father, I receive that. I take that. I ask, Father, that you will help me to never not want this, to never not want for Jesus to bring me into your eternal presence. And so, Father, thank you for this great session that we've had. Thank you for OT with DA. Give us a great day, and Lord, continue to bless our study. Uh, We love you and thank you in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.